Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one that's going to join it soon, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. Leopold and Victor, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. For those people who don't know who you are, can you offer a little bit of background? Okay, uh, do you want to go first? Or? No, Victor goes first. He's younger than I am. Okay. <laughs> All right, so hi, everybody. My name is Victor. I'm currently a third year in medical school at Georgetown. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, born and raised, and I'm excited to be here on the podcast today. Okay, so I'm Leopold Cox. I'm Victor's dad. I'm originally from a tiny island called Grenada. And if you want to go even smaller than that, I'm from Caraco Island, Grenada. Wow. Immigrated here in 1979 with my parents and my siblings. Victor came after, naturally, many years later. I grew up the second part of growing up in Brooklyn, New York, in East Flatbush. Mm. The first part was of growing up was Grenada, like I said. And um, that's the age of, eight, of 13. Back there, you feel like you're grown up already. Yeah. So uh, switch into a new life in New York. That was a culture shock. And went on to work the MTA for many years and now a lawyer. Yes, a second career. Just practicing law? What type of law? Yeah, I'm a lawyer for New York City. Wow. So there's multiple, multiple transitions here. So let's go through this piece by piece. So the first thing is we can't skip over the Granada part. Because my first awareness of Granada was the invasion in 1983. So this is four years after you left. Correct. And I wish they still taught geography in school, but they didn't teach geography in my school. So I remember we invaded a place. The last place that I remember invading was Vietnam. And so all of a sudden we had like paratroopers in Granada. And I was, so 1983, I was 15 years old. And I remember I was like, what on earth is going on there. Can you talk a little bit about, you said you were already mature when you emigrated, a little bit like when it was growing up there. It was a period of time of political turmoil. And then if you look back on that invasion, it's actually a tie-in to you, Victor, because <laughs> the Reagan administration claimed the reason that they were invading is that American medical students were at risk there. So this is ancient history for anybody young, but for I remember it vividly. Grenada got independence from England in 1974. Right. So I was born in 66. So I have some memory of growing up there that's peaceful. Uh-huh. Everything was peaceful up until a revolution in 1979. Right. As Marxists or something, right? Yeah. yeah. You could call it that. Around 1979, you might remember there was a lot of turmoil in the whole world. Yes. I think we, there was something in Iran. Iranian there revolution, yeah. There of some other things on some other Caribbean islands. But then Cuba and a faction in Grenada did a coup. The prime minister at the time left the country and he couldn't come back because there was an overnight coup. 
And do you remember this as a kid? So this is, is this right, is this right before you emigrated or right afterwards? It was right before. Right before. So was this a triggering event? It happened. My father used to work for the government uh-huh. as a civil servant. And uh, we are actually in Grenada on the mainland at the time of the revolution itself. We, we had to be in Grenada to travel to Barbados because that's where the embassy is for uh, immigration matters. Uh-huh. So we are already in the process of immigrating. It just so happened while we were in Grenada to travel to Barbados for an interview with uh, INS, the revolution happened. So that's like March 13, 1979. And so your father is saying, or your father and mother are saying, let's just get out of here. <laughs> no, my mother said that. <laughs> so uh, by July of 1979, we all came to America. And my father went back to, do, to serve. Like I said, he was a civil servant uh-huh. for the government. He went back to serve his time. And within a couple of months of after going back, my mother said again, no. You're coming out of there. It must have been an unbelievable shock. I mean, in a way, it's not quite as violent as what's going on in Ukraine now, but it's this type of, if you broadly put it out of the category of a disruption that causes people to flee, it's sort of there in that There were some category. that would say it's, um, it was bloodless, but it, that's not true. Some blood was spilled. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a certain gentleman that used to be an actual minister in the government, he was a close friend of my father. Mm. And I remember after that, during the revolution, they had him in jail. They had a certain amount of detainees, government officials, that they kept locked up for a long period of time. And I remember seeing this gentleman visiting my father in America after, and you could see he suffered in prison. Yeah, and that was very, and that's a minister of education. Yeah. There was no need for that. Yeah, I once spoke with a Russian deputy finance minister who had recently gotten out of prison, also been arrested in political. And I remember his, the fear, it had changed him forever. So then you're in New York, you're growing up in New York. So describe that experience as an immigrant. This is all pre-Victor. What was that experience like for you? So uh, landing in New York at night, coming from a place like the Caribbean, and you're landing in New York in a giant place, you're in the airplane and you're coming in, it's bright lights everywhere. Uh And you're like, you're feeling very good, right? Yes. And then the next day you wake up and you look outside and it's different. Yeah. And then you're living in a world where you're coming from a place where the whole island was your backyard. You could just roam as free as you want. Yes. And then you kind of become a latch, we call it a, a latch kid or a latch key baby or something uh-huh. like that, we used to call it. You're actually uh-huh. locked in the house. Uh-huh. After school, you would come home directly and you're locked in the house. That's a shock. That was a great shock. And how do you find New York socially? In other words, did it, so that's a shock being there, but did you find the city, did you find this something that was exciting? Did you find it more threatening? Did you, was it a mix? Wasn't excited at all. Mm. Um, my whole life was school, mm-hmm. and that's where I got introduced to racism. I mean, I'm a black person from the Caribbean. 
I never experienced any type of, or I didn't recognize or experience any racism, right? And then now I'm in a setting where other black people are calling me names like coconuts and trying to pick on me and stuff like that. It's something I was never used to. So where you were born, where you were growing up, is it is it majority black? So basically you have a sense that there's nothing unusual. So back there, you were talking about 98, 99% black people uh-huh. that lived there at the time. So, Do you know, just out of curiosity, where, how your family got there? Was it part of the slave trade or what was the, what was, what was the Yes, that's the, her- that's the heritage. So from West Africa to yes. Granada as slaves. Yeah. And then, so that would have been whatever, the 16 or 1700s yes. or something. Got it. Okay. It's the same story for most. So then you come to America. I haven't heard of that epithet before. Why coconuts? This is, this is because you're from the islands? Correct. Okay. And so this is black Americans basically picking on you. Right. And then there's a whole other form of, and there was a neighborhood you were in Brooklyn, mostly black, or was it mixed? No, it was mostly black. And then when you left that neighborhood and you were in, I don't know, a different part of the city or something like that, and all of a sudden it's majority white, what was that experience like after growing up in a place where it just wasn't? Sadly, introduction to more racism that I didn't know existed Mm. because I never had that perspective. I never lived that life. My brother used to uh, work in a white neighborhood. Uh Canarsie was a white neighborhood at the time. He came home one day with white paint on him. And it turned out a group of people threw paint on him in Canarsie. So that was my first exposure to knowing that this existed. So then you come home, the brother has this experience, you're at the family dinner table. How are people, what's the discussion like? What do mom and dad say? What do, you, what do the other siblings say? Well, it's shock. It was shock. And we had to learn that this is what happens. This is what goes on. It's something that was never my perspective. Did your parents have any guidance for how to deal with it? Was it just sort of like, this is, this is evil, but it's what we have to put up with. It's better than being a Granada? Oh, we just have to watch ourselves. We have to watch ourselves. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Given this experience that you had growing up, there's this probably hundreds of other small incidents, I'm guessing, that you know, you, you've experienced. So then how did that shape how you were raising Victor? <laughs> Sadly, we, have to, we had to teach them, well, I had to try to teach them that these things existed. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't teach me that because I guess they didn't experience it like that. Right, but I experienced it. So maybe this is the first thing of, of things you didn't right. learn in school. 
this was sort of an important life so lesson. I was never taught that right growing up back home in uh, back home they'll teach you geography math and stuff like that they don't teach you stuff that connects to the world which is I feel we need to do more of that not just in those islands but here yeah here I came into the eighth grade they didn't teach you stuff like this that this existed you know when you teach history this is where you're from as a black person this is where you come from it's nothing to be ashamed of that you descended of slaves but this is where you came from other people benefited from from this but that's the that's the ancestors yeah because of the slavery situation you descended people that descended from the slave owners have a certain advantage but that's yes even though it's not an active situation and you can't blame them for it which you shouldn't it exists they have an advantage that you don't have when did you start teaching these lessons to victor that I'll turn to you victor and see what you remember being taught at these lessons i don't know when i start teaching that yep if i started from an early age or an age where they could understand it or at an age where uh-huh. they started having interactions or it, it's actually they actually living in it mm. as a parent you try to shield your, your your kids from from this type of heartache let's call it a heartache right because it is stressful do victor when do you do you remember this do you remember these lessons being imparted? I, I'd say like when I started to have like these interactions and like I started to come home and say, well, this happened to me, right? Or, you know, this thing just didn't make me feel right. As a kid, you don't really think about like, you know, things such as like, you know, racism and, you know, like the fact that things are like very structural. But once you start to share those things, my parents would say like, well, that's racist. And then that, then that discussion would like, begin to happen. And it's interesting, like the way that he describes his experience, because I think like he immigrated here, like I was born here and like, there's actually an additional layer to it. And the way I experience and internalize and process racism myself, as somebody who was like, born here, in addition to the fact that my ancestors were, were slaves here, we and you know, we have the we are put in this disadvantaged situation and the people who took advantage of the situation like have an advantage. There's many aspects of society today that still feed off of that. Like actually actively, not, not just, you know, the remnants of the past, but like actually continuing knowingly and willingly do so. So, and when I navigate, you know, this, this, this specific spaces that I navigate, you know, having gone to like predominantly white high school, predominantly white college and a predominantly white medical school, you, you kind of see how those things are like still are in play today. For sure. Both passively and actively. Before we get to all that, because there's, there's a lot there too. So is, is there a specific incident when you're beginning to just mature and grow up that you're like, whoa, that didn't sit right, then you go talk to dad, and then how did dad make sense of that? Definitely, like, 
in school, like uh-huh. the white students would say very mean things to me, like on a daily basis. What's an example? That were just like overtly racist. Like, why don't you crawl back into that rat hole you just came out of, that you that you came out of. They'll make jokes about black people like constantly. This is in high school or college or medical school? No, th- uh, this is high school. High school, okay, earlier, got it. They'll, they'll say th- like these very like overtly racist things. Other instances were like teachers. Um, like I was somebody who prided myself in doing very well in school. It was important to me uh-huh. that I take the, get the most out of my education. In many of my classes, I was the only black student in the class. So it didn't sit, for whatever reason, didn't sit right with them that I was the, one of the top performers in the class. So You're a geek. they try to like, you know, deflate my grades here and there, whatever they could. And But they didn't understand. I kept the folder, like a massive folder with every single assignment that I ever done because it did. You know, like after they wronged me once, I was like, I'm not going to get fooled again. Mm. By the time parent-teacher conference comes, I will pull out everything and I'll be like, let's do the math right here. And you're going to see my average for this course is a 98 and not an 85. There was even this one teacher who intentionally gave every black student in the class an 85 and all the white students 95s. Like I would ask Gora and ask around. And when I did when I like averaged everything together, it was a 99. So already in high school, you're basically forcing the teachers to properly account for your performance. Correct. And, you know, I was lucky to be in a position where I was actively keeping track of all those things, have parents that were on top of it in this regard. It makes me think about all the other students who are suffering the same injustice, but are not aware that this is happening to them or don't have somebody standing in their corner saying like, no, you should fight this. Right. Right. And, you know, don't even get me started with my inter my personal interactions with the police. Like, you know, you could honestly, you could go and ask any black person what in- interaction have you have with the police and everybody has a story. Yep. And it doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a business executive, you're, like they're going to have something because right. they don't see not not saying that, you know, that um, depending <laughs> on what you do as a profession should allow you to be treated differently by the police. Right. Obviously, not right. everybody should just should be treated fairly, no matter like what your profession is. But to them, all they see is all they see is black. Yep. And that shouldn't even be a thing. You know, I didn't even know they were stopping my son in the subway and searching him uh, at, at the train station when he was going to high school. I didn't know that until a couple of years ago. So when, for instance, with the grades, you figured that out and you came and you spoke to mom and dad, what was, do you recall what that conversation was like, Victor? Before I realized that I was like being targeted Uh in that regard, Uh um, it was more of like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, you know, I, like I've never gotten a grade in this class on any home assignment or test below a 90. Uh-huh. And so how can this have resulted in an 80 something, yep. right? It does like, it just, it just factually doesn't make sense. Yeah. And like, you know, given their experience dealing with pos- probably similar things in their lives and having dealt with it for so long, they were like, okay, I know exactly what's happening and this is what we're going to do. So when they said, I know exactly what's happening, this is what we're going to do. What was, what was the plan? Was the plan to go sit down and confront the teacher to talk to the principal? And was there any response? Typically it would result in like some sort of like parent teacher conference. <laughs> and, you know, I would, I, I, I'll, I'll always remember the folder. It's like a, 
cloth blue folder like it has like multiple sections i had tabs for every single subject and every single assignment it was it was like this big and i would i, I would walk around with it and you know uh, anytime somebody tried to mess mess with me in that regard i would bring out the i would bring out the documents or like the kids call it these days like bringing out the receipts yeah Wow. Oh, we shouldn't have to do that, right? We shouldn't have to do that. And, you know, like, Agreed. I have another friend, actually, who faced very similar things. We talked about it extensively the other day. And it's like, wow, like, this is actually a thing that is happening. This, like, deflating of grades <laughs> is something that's happening to Black students across the board. Wow. And then in the subway, you say then the police were frisking you in the subway? If you know anything about, like, stop and frisk in New York City, like... If you're black, you've been stopped and frisked before. And it doesn't matter how older you are, old you are, like they'll just stop you and they'll put you up against the wall and they'll search you. How do you how do you see a kid dressed going to a prep school in his uniform in the morning, school time, going to the train to catch the train? How do you pull that kid over mm. in the subway and put him through that? Were you not telling your parents about this because you didn't want to disturb them or because it was sort of at this point, you, it was so baked into your expectations that you were like, this can happen? It was a little bit of both at the uh -huh. time. I don't think I really fully understood the gravity of like what was happening to me. It was only when I went to college, I learned a lot more about uh, sociology and like, you know, how to talk about racism and like police brutality and like just becoming like more like educated about these things mm. where I was like, whoa, wait, no, that's messed up. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. I, like, <laughs> like how, how the heck? I didn't really talk to other students in my high school about these things. And in college, it was such a, like, a very, like, open intellectual environment where people were, like, genuinely curious about, like, each other's experiences. Mm. When I told my stories, people yeah. were in shock. And like, they were like, what? Like, how does that, like, how did, that doesn't even make any sense. Right. And to me, I was in shock myself when they were shocked because we were so used to like these experiences back in New York. And I, that I thought it was just, I, th I thought it was just a fact of life, right? That, mm. And I didn't realize that the vast majority of people are not going through what I, what I went through. Right. You know? And that's, that's when I started to, open up about these things more because I just started to understand that like, oh, like this is, this is not, this is not normal. It shouldn't be normal. To circle back to Leopold, you growing up pre-emigration, there was political stability there. I don't know what the economic situation was like, but this feature of life was basically completely absent. Correct. And then all of a sudden you come here and you sort of, there's this, on the one hand, you get more political stability, probably more potential for wealth, but then it comes at this very, very high cost at the same time, too. Yeah, a completely different environment. We use the term wealth to mean um, having capital and having savings mm -hmm. and having ownership. Um, there we had ownership, our own house, our own land. Yes. All right animals and farming and stuff like that yes and here we did not also wealth cut i mean it depends how you know mental health is a form of wealth too yeah 
Yeah. So it's it's this very high uh, this very high experience. I say that to mean that wealth here is something people like me, my children and their children, and people like us should concentrate more on. Uh, we need more ownership, mm-hmm. and that's something we weren't taught in the schools. There are here, because there it was more natural, because you have it. You grew into it. Here, you have to achieve it, right? Yes. And to achieve it, you have to be taught that this is important to do. I wasn't taught that when I came here. Uh-huh. And they're not teaching that. I agree. At an early age. Going through life, we stumble into it, and it clicks. It's like you're looking at the system as in some ways deeply, deeply flawed. And at the same time, it seems like your family culture was one that deeply valued education. Definitely. So there's a little bit of a strange paradox there. Like the system, <laughs> the system is crooked and you have deep faith in aspects of the system. Is that accurate? Because the system has the potential to deliver for everyone. Yeah. It's just that we we are coming at it with with the and how it's being applied. The um, it's not an even playing field. Yes, just like the constitution, the potential is there. Victor, at this point, when did the idea start to dawn on you that you want to be a doctor? Was this something you were already thinking about in high school? Were you like better at science and math than you were at say history, or how was that? You know, what, what did the idea start to percolate? How I got here was, it, it was actually pretty complicated. My mom's a science teacher, so I've always sort of been exposed to science. My dad is very into politics and law, so I also had that aspect as well. So I think when I was a kid, like, I wanted to be a doctor, but, like, I think when I was in high school, I actually, when I started to realize how many injustices there were out there, you know, just having that coming of age experience in Brooklyn. I actually wanted to be a lawyer for a while while I was in high school. I didn't know that. <laughs> I I joined the speech and debate team and I was like very involved in that. And I really enjoyed it because I care because I care about these issues. Right. But then when I went to college, I kind of like I, I, I found a home in the biological sciences, but also like that's a lot of the social sciences. Mm-hmm. And I realized that my passion for helping people, like holistically the needs of people, like could actually be fulfilled in becoming a doctor. And I'm realizing that even more now than ever, when I, now that I'm doing cl- clinical rotations and working with like hundreds of patients, that a lot of medicine is not even just pharmacology and like science a lot of it is just being a good human being and treating people with respect and dignity and just being aware of like the social context of their illnesses and you know treating to that as well and being aware of social factors and social determinants of health and having a patient advocacy mindset, being aware of even the political landscape is extremely important for patient care. Can you give a concrete example where you feel like that message crystallized for you? I mean, I'll actually like give a, like an example of, of 
how I connect with some of my patients, like particularly those who are like black patients. Because of like the history of how physicians, particularly white physicians, have treated black patients throughout history, there's like a lot of mistrust. We have the Tuskegee syphilis Mm -hmm. experiments, you have like Henrietta Lacks, and those are just highlights of a long history of people being taken advantage of, particularly black people being taken advantage of. And, you know, a lot of racism continues today, and it actually affects patient outcomes and mortality rates today. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's, it's so interesting that, like, even sometimes by me being present in the room and interacting with the patients, they become more comfortable with me. So tell us a story. You want a, you want a specific story? Yeah, I, well, I'm fascinated. I know listeners love yeah. them, too, because it helps, it helps make an abstract thing very concrete. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a... I had a patient recently who um, she was like trying to make a decision about her care. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was there with the attend uh, the attending physician and the residents and they're all great doctors. Like there, there were no issues with them. Right. Mm-hmm. They, they did, they did a really great job of like explaining the risks and the benefits. Right. Mm-hmm. They had stepped out for a second and I was just helping the patient with something. Cause as a third year medical student, you're sort of like, you are doing like patient interviews and physical exam and stuff and you're doing other things things to like just help support the patient mm-hmm. lighten the load of like the very busy like residents and attendings right mm-hmm. and the patient asked me well what do you think about all that uh-huh. and I was like oh can you be more specific like um what do you like what, what, what would you like me to like share with you yep. and she straight up asked me like as a black person black person to black person what do you think about all of that really I thought that was so interesting uh-huh. because I'm the med student the residents yeah. and attendings are experts and, you know, have been doing this for a long time. And I feel like more qualified to like speak on these things uh-huh. than I am. But in my response, I, you know, I try, I try to carefully because I'm a med student. I can't really give, yep. you know, definitive medical advice yet, yep. but I was part, I was part of the care team. So I was able to like, you know, just give some additional reassurance that helped her feel a lot better and make a good decision for her health. And I, th- I thought that was a good moment because I think that just went a long way. You know, just being able to like reassure her and like connect with her on that level. Was the essence of the medical advice you're giving the same as the other doctors? But just the fact that she sees somebody that looks like her, it's like a degree of trust that wouldn't otherwise be there. Is that the essence of it? That, that's that's correct. Because I'm not I'm not deviating from what the decisions or I shouldn't say decisions because the patient makes the decisions, but right. the recommendations, I should say that I didn't deviate from the recommendations that the resident and the attendings gave, but just by like, you know, being there and connecting on that level and providing additional reinsurance makes all the difference or made a huge difference in that moment. What do you attribute that to, that psychological moment where the intellectual content is the same, but the emotional experience is completely different? I can attribute it to the fact that it, that already um, for, you know, a physician patient interaction, there is a power imbalance. Interesting. On top of that, when you add like our experiences of racism as as black people, it adds an additional layer of power imbalance. Right. And when that happens, it's particularly it, it, it can possibly be helpful to as a patient, I, I, I'd say to have to, to be able to interact with people or feel like they are like not inferior in that moment, especially in those vulnerable, vulnerable moments. Right. So yeah. if you kind of like have 
support from somebody who looks like you yeah. and you feel like they're advocating for you, yeah. it might lessen that Howard differential between the physician and patient. Yeah. It's just so, it's so, I mean, it's fascinating. It is so subtle too, because it would be, it would be one level of thing, at least in my mind, it's one level of thing. If the doctor is giving terrible advice, like not treating somebody for whatever type of thing, or like just contrasting in the school where they're basically saying you got an 85 when you got a 98, that's like the content is just totally wrong. And this thing, it's like the content is, is the same. But still, it's like there's this extra element. And I guess it's maybe from so many years of experience of being given the 85 when you got the 98, you're almost primed to expect that. Right. And so maybe she's thinking in there, like, I was just given the 85 and actually the answer is 98. And if you confirm it, she's like, no, 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 the answer is actually 98. Maybe something like that. I'm guessing. I think that's a pretty like decent comparison. That's how ingrained this stuff is, you know, and... That's, I mean, like I like I haven't even touched on like you know the implicit biasy, yeah, implicit biases on the side of like like many white uh, you know uh, clinicians, right? This yeah. is just simply like from the side of the black patient who was just so used to being marginalized that when somebody's actually you know giving them a good a good recommendation. It's very hard to receive that and be like, okay, this is actually probably the best thing for me without questioning it because we've been slighted so many times. Right, right. But that's why I love the specifics because the specifics are so illustrative of the general. So while this is going on, Victor is, you know, dealing with all of this in high school, thinking about college. You, Leopold, the whole time are supporting how many? Three children? Yes. Driving the bus for MTA for how many years were you behind the wheel? 29 and a half. So 29 and a half. So what, you know, what are you thinking about all this time? What, I mean, this is, this is a lot on your shoulders. And what was it, what was it like to drive a bus that long? Was it, was there, was there aspects that you liked about it? Did you hate it? What was the, what was, what was the experience like? It's a very good job. Uh huh. Um, people underestimate how good the job is. I don't underestimate it. It was a wonderful job. Being out in the city, your office is the wide open street, right? It's the whole world. It's not being locked in within four corners uh-huh. and interacting with a lot of people. It's one, one of the best jobs in the world, I would say that. Basically, you finish it, you come out on 30, 29 and a half years as you come out on pension and everything else, I'm assuming, correct? Yes, definitely. Yep. Uh, sort of like serving in the military almost. So then you're, and at that time, you're thinking politics and law is somewhere, in the, is that back of your head the whole time or is it something that just developed over time? Okay, so I went to law school in 2014, so I was still driving a bus. I did go to law school while I was driving a bus. I went to law school in the evening time. I graduated February of 2018 and passed the bar that same year. And I continued in the bus driving to get the pension, which happened about eight months ago. And and what motivated you to to pursue the law? I did a master's in political science in um, 2002 to 2003. Uh And again, I stayed in transit after that. Even though I said transit was a wonderful job, which it is. But the actual internal politics 
and biases and all of that exists there as it does everywhere else. There's even politics so, in driving a bus? In the union and in management, oh, for yes. for sure, for sure. That makes sense. <laughs> the union would be big, yes. That's notorious. Right? So that's where the, uh, the friction is, right? People are people. In doing that, I used to have to fight transit a lot on my behalf and on the behalf of other workers, which they hated. I'll give you a personal example. I won't tell you about other people's stuff. Uh-huh. For promotion to supervisor, there's a criteria. I see. Right? One of it is to take an exam and be on a list. Yes. Right? I took that exam three times. Uh-huh. The, last, the second to the last time, I was number 14 on the list and got passed over. They wouldn't even tell you... Uh, your list, your number came up, we evaluated you and we decided not to choose you. No. You find out they didn't choose you when somebody you know is way down the list after you gets the job. Mm. All right. So I had to object to that. I fought that for quite a number of years. I fought that. All right. I eventually got the job because I took the exam again. Mm-hmm. All right. And the day before the decision was to come down from arbitration on the previous one. I was in training with the promotion mm. for that exam. Was it politics or was it was it racism? What do you think was behind that first thing that you were disputing? Sadly, I don't think it's racism. Uh-huh. In transit, for some reason, they don't like the fact that you went on to get an education. Oh, my goodness. Which is very sad. So the fact that you were educated worked against you. Right. Wow. If I didn't go get a bachelor's and a master's at that time, I'd be one of the big bosses in transit by now. And that's what's lacking. And that's why the system is the way it is. You make it through law school, you pass the bar, and then you're, then you get involved in politics? No, I actually, while I was in, um, Law school in 2016, I ran for uh, city council. What's it like being in the political machine? Like I've looked at, and we've I've actually interviewed. What drove me to it? I was crazy. <laughs> what was the experience like, the political campaign? It was a very interesting uh, experience. I learned a lot about myself. It's very hard to put yourself out there. It's brutal. Out in the public, your whole life out there. And I, I commend anybody that does that. And I think the public owes a debt to everybody that does that. All right. We should appreciate people that do that. I think that is so insightful. Because it's very hard. But what I am sad about is enough good people, good hearted people. And by that, I mean what I call a good hearted person as it relates to politics is people that would do what's best for a large amount of people oppose us just a small set or themselves. Yes. But more people that are good-hearted should get into politics because we need that. Victor's evolution from this whole thing. I mean, there's obviously enormous amounts of difficulties, but I got to imagine as a dad, you've got to be thrilled, right? I'm very thrilled. I'm proud. I'm very proud yes. of all my children. Uh-huh. I mean, I worked them hard. Don't get me wrong. I did work them hard. Me and my wife, we both worked them hard, and they delivered. 
Not for us, for them. And so when you're first down there, like at the induction ceremony, when Victor, you know, is going in medical school at Georgetown and stuff like that, and you're going all the way back to the, you know, leaving and the coup in 1978, I mean, there's aspects about the story that are unbelievably depressing. In other words, the institutional racism and all the slights that you guys are talking about. But there's other aspects of the story that are unbelievably uplifting. I mean, to talk about, you know, what year did you enter Georgetown, Victor? Uh, it started in 2020. So from 1979, when you leave, to 2020, I mean, that's 41 years. It's like a huge amount of change in that very short period of time. Yes. But to me, it's steps. And I've always wanted my kids to do, let's put it a simple way. The amount of years it takes me to get, it took me to get where I am. I want it to take them at least half the time. Mm-hmm. which they have, and I think, to me, that's success. One of the people on the shows asked me, are there heroes in the modern world, and what does the, what does the definition of heroes look like? And I think probably every person would answer it differently, but my answer has always been that in each generation, there's a bunch of things that you want to pass on to the next generation, but there's a bunch of things that you don't want to pass on to the next generation. And the heroism to me is basically stopping the transmission of the stuff that you don't want to pass on because they're difficult. They're very difficult to avoid that. Those things those things exist in every family for a reason, and they're difficult to change. And I think, you know, it could be that there's alcoholism in the family and then you are somehow able to break that, that the, the kids don't experience, and whatever. Many, there are many, 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 many issues that happen in families. And um, I think being able to do that is such a, that's one of the things that blew me away about the story. So one of the things that I've certainly thought about a lot is also mental health issues. And you guys know that I wrote a book about one of my kids yeah. who had this terrible experience before we uh, brought her into our home. And then, you know, tragically as an adult, um, he committed a felony. And it was really, really sobering for me because um, I could see how easily for using not a clinical word, just a common like that, that a person could get rattled. And once they get rattled, they can their their mind can work in different different ways. And this the you know the thing the reason why I wrote the story is is reversing something like that is super super difficult. When you think about the violence, and then Victor, your perspective now as as you know a soon to be physician, what do you think about the mental health legacy of growing up in that type of environment, and then the issues you now see in your practice? Big question, but I'm curious whatever you have to say. Yeah, I mean, it is a big question that's going to probably require a very big answer. <laughs> Within this conversation we alone, we could begin to touch up upon this the surface of this mental health issue, particularly when it pertains to the violence. And I think a lot of people in the community, both people who have experienced the violence and 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 the and the perpetrators of the violence have trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're starting to learn and there's a lot of like literature on this as well that you know th- these these traumas are can be generational it starts from it starts from before conception mm-hmm. and it and it continues for sure we we have a huge mm-hmm. we we have a huge task on our hands in addressing that a lot of it starts from 
you know, addressing, you know, the socioeconomic inequality mm -hmm. in the community, like, you know, lack of educational opportunities. Like it's, it definitely starts with that. But we also do need to address the mental health aspect as well. But the two things are probably interrelated, right? Because as, right. I mean, certainly in my daughter's education, they were that to the degree her mental health was kind of in flux. It made concentrating at school way harder. Yeah, no, absolutely. I 100% agree that it's like very interconnected. And I think about sometimes even how, like, I, I, I didn't realize how much like the environment like even affected me as an individual mm -hmm. by the time like I was growing up it wasn't as hectic as when he was growing up but it was still like there, there was still stuff go like going on there were still gunshots ringing out like you know I'd be coming home from school a little late and then somebody would take out a gun and start firing I, do, I wouldn't even know I, I don't even know what they were shooting at because I didn't stay around long enough to find out right. Right. <laughs> but you know uh yeah, I'm just sprinting home, right? And, you know, like, I'm not, like, in the moment, I'm, like, in those moments, I'm in fight or flight. So right. I run home and, like, you know, I would maybe be anxious for, like, 10 to 20 minutes. But then it, it was so commonplace that I got used to it. Life, like, life goes on, right? <laughs> but, you know, like, I didn't realize how much this, you know, these things affected me. I, there was a time where I actually had a close call when I was 16. I was on the phone. I was locked out of the house because I forgot my keys. I never forget my keys, but that day I did, right? And I was standing outside on the phone with my mom, and it was maybe, I would say, less than 20 feet away from me. I see this guy whip out his pistol, and he starts shooting. I don't know if he was shooting at somebody, if he was shooting at the air. It was loud. I was, like, jumped onto the floor. Like, cause I didn't even have time to run inside. Right. I just jumped onto the ground and that shook me. And to this day, like I still, like if I hear a loud bang, yeah. like I jump every single time because yeah. of that, yeah. that one incident. Which is how trauma works. And unless you like, you address it, like it's, it's here to stay. Like, you know, and it's, and you know, like I had, and when I think about this, right, I think it puts things in perspective. Yeah. I like, you know, we had our challenges as a family growing up, but like, I think I'm in a much better place. We are in a much better place than where we started as we were, we've been talking about this whole, mm -hmm. um, this whole time. Right. I have that experience of trauma. It makes me think about all the other people in the community that did not have those opportunities yeah. that I've had. Yeah. And I kind of even begin to imagine the amount of, you know, stress, trauma that they have, and how that manifests in their lives. Right. Well, that's the acting out we see every day. Right. The name of the podcast is Things I Didn't Learn in School. And it's all around this concept, Leopold, that you were talking about before, like they didn't teach that. So for both of you guys... Your biggest things, you can, you can have as many or a few lessons as you want. The biggest things that you weren't taught in school that you've learned. I guess like one of the biggest things that I did not learn in school is the thing that I, it was, it's the thing that I believe have, that my parents kind of gave to me. I don't even think they necessarily realized it. Mm. That has allowed me to get where I am today, Right. And I think it's the power of advocacy hmm. for yourself. You know, my 
natural tendency is to be more timid, be more reserved, and mm-hmm. go with the flow, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I wasn't the kind of person who wanted to rock the boat, mm. uh, but, you know, I was put in many situations where if I didn't rock the boat, like, I wouldn't advance, right? Like, when the teacher did these things, right, right for, for example, like, my gut is like, just leave it alone, right? They were like, no, we're not going to leave it alone, <laughs> right? And there came a point even where, like, I started to get so used to, like, advocating, for being my own best advocate, mm-hmm. where sometimes they were like, okay, maybe you should leave it alone. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to leave it alone. I think that mindset that they gave to me that, you know, there is no ceiling to like what you can accomplish if you work hard enough for it or want it really badly is something that I didn't learn in school. In fact, I think the environment in school, like particularly while I was growing up, tried to actively fight me doing that. Yeah, that's powerful. That's a powerful lesson. Leopold, what's the biggest, biggest lesson you did learn in school? Well, the biggest lesson I didn't learn in school is... The, not the, not a perception, but a reality that it is okay, that uh, life is positive, right? Even the histories we have and the experiences we have, right? Life is positive, right? There are good people in the world. Mm. I meet them every day. Inherently, some people are bad people, but they are... They're fewer than the good people that are out there, hmm. right? The, there's a significant, overwhelming amount of people that sits in between those two, right? And those are the ones that could make the difference. Hmm. It's up to good people to let them know it's okay to participate yeah. and be on the good side of the fence. That's a profound lesson too, Leopold. The world has changed since you and I grew up. All right, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much.